And so, since we're talking about scripture in the Bible, we can go ahead and read some. Um, we're going to be pulling from John chapter 6 today, verses 1 through 15. Uh, you can find it in your Bible or on the screen. It's also printed in the bulletin that you were given on the way in. Uh, and now that everyone's back to their seat, I'm going to invite you to join me in standing for the reading of Scripture. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And when he looked up, he saw a large crowd coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for all of these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in this place, so they sat down about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's the hope that kills you. Now that saying has been around for a long time. It's the hope that kills you. And some people believe it goes all the way back to Shakespeare that someone summarized one of his plays with those words. But it's made its way into sort of the social vernacular, even into sports. And that's how it got into being the subject and the title of the final show in the first season of Ted Lasso. It's the hope that kills you. And the idea is, is that if, if you hope for something amazing, like for your team to win the national championship and it doesn't happen, the heartbreak from that is, is so heartbreaking that it's tough to recover from. And so it's better just to expect the worst. And if you expect the worst, then if something good happens, it's that much better. But if it doesn't, oh well, you expected the worst. Because, they say, it's the hope that kills you. I don't know what was going through the disciples' minds 
We only have two responses from the disciples when Jesus starts talking about feeding the crowd. Now, 5,000 people in attendance, and some scholars tell us that they only counted men in that number. So the number could actually be 10,000, 15,000, we don't know. But there were a lot of people, essentially. Too many to feed with what they probably had with them. And there was, there was no Walmart we could go and get a bunch of stuff all at once. There was just the little places where they made food back in their homes, but they weren't home. They were out in an open plain. John tells us there was a lot of grass where they were. They were out on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee on a gentle slope area where Jesus could stand at the bottom and preach up to them. His voice would carry up the hill. Again, we don't know exactly what was going through their minds, but it is one disciple, Philip, who speaks out when Jesus starts talking about feeding all these people. And, and, and Philip has what people call scarcity thinking, scarcity, a scarcity mindset. There's no way we can do anything that is gonna come close to feeding these people. Philip says, you know what, Jesus? Not even six months wages would be enough to pay for all these people to have a few crumbs. So why even try? Why even get their hopes up? We should just not say anything and let them go on home. If they're hungry, they'll eat something when they get home. Scarcity thinking. It's the hope that kills you, right? Don't even think about doing something amazing because it probably won't happen. Andrew thinks a little bit differently, but I wouldn't really call him a hopeful person. Andrew looks around and he sees this young boy with some food, five barley loaves, smaller barley loaves and two small fish. Now we don't know if that child came out of the generosity of his heart and saw that there were hungry people and brought his food and said, here, take this. We don't know if that's the case. Or if Andrew looked over and said, well, if we had to, we could take this little boy's lunch. That doesn't really seem very Christian, does it? Either way, all they had, the only resources they had were these five barley loaves and these two fish. And so Andrew says, we've got this. It won't go very far, but maybe it'll help. It's not a lot of faith. It's not a lot of hope, is it? It's the hope that kills you. Might as well just do what you can with what you have got. This kind of thinking is not new to the Bible. It's something that God's people were dealing with for a long, long time. Now, John gives us some cues in this passage that he's connecting it to Exodus. So kids, if you just got your Bibles, that's the second book in the Old Testament. And in Exodus, God's people find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. And God wants to liberate them. And so he sends a messenger named Moses who says, let my people go. He doesn't sing like that, but let my people go, right? He wants to free them, God does, from Egypt, from slavery, to get them to a promised land that we call Israel. And so God does this through Moses and they get out of Egypt and they go out into the wilderness where they wander around for 40 
years. And let me tell you something. There's not a lot of food out in the wilderness. They were getting hungry. They were losing hope. And it got to the point at which they were about to throw a mutiny. They were going to do something. In fact, they were starting to grumble. We probably should go back to Egypt. Yes, we were slaves there, but at least we had a place to lay our heads and we had a little bit of food. Out here, we have nothing. Now, the clues that we have in the passage that connect this is that it says that the time was about Passover, that Jesus was teaching this. And the Passover is one of those seasons or miracles from Exodus that happens that allows the people to be let go by the Pharaoh from Egypt. And the other clue is that he's feeding them bread. He's feeding them bread and there's bread for everyone as much as they need. And if you read Exodus, you find out that God provided food for the Israelites after they were grumbling about going back to Egypt because the hope is going to kill us out here. We're never going to get to to Israel. We're never going to have a promised land. We might as just well go back and get used to being slaves. So God provided them food. It was manna. It would, it would sort of appear on the ground every morning and they were able to go and get that bread-like substance and eat that. And if you translate manna in Hebrew to English, it sort of means, what is it? Have you ever put a new food in front of your children and they say, what is that? I'm not eating that. That's literally what the Bible says manna was. What is this? And yet that sustained them through their entire wilderness journey. This bread, daily bread, think about the Lord's prayer, that, that sustained them. So again, God was trying to get them to hold on to hope and to believe that he would take them God would take them into the promised land. It might take them a lot longer than they wanted, but if they could hold on to hope, they would be able to make it through. Maybe it's not the hope that kills you. Maybe it's the lack of hope that kills you. Maybe it's the belief that nothing good will happen, that it's better just to not try that we give up before we even try to do something worthwhile with our lives or our time, our resources. Maybe it's the lack of hope that kills us. In fact, there are people who will say to you, scholars who've studied the psychology of hope and faith, and they will tell you the most faithful people are also the most hopeful people. And a lack of hope is directly connected to a lack of faith. Now, I also want to be careful. We're not in the business of going around and judging one another's faith. Jesus talks about this. And yet at the same time, we need to understand that there is this correlation between hope and faith. The stronger our faith is, the more hopeful we are for the future. The more that we can bring our resources to God and say, I don't know what you can do with it, but I believe you can and will do something amazing with this. Because it's the lack of hope that kills us. It's the lack of hope that almost sent the people of Israel back into slavery in Egypt. But it was hope that kept them. It was God who sustained them. It was hope that kept them going because God was literally present with them throughout that season. Maybe it's the lack of hope that kills us. And God knows 
that what we need the most is hope. And so he sent his son to show us how much he loves us. What the way is to true life and how faith in him can overcome anything. Here is Jesus overcoming overcoming the lack of food by taking five barley loaves and two fish and multiplying them into something amazing, something that can make a difference. Now, you heard from Amy this morning in Asbury Now that we are a part of a mission a month. And our mission for March is food insecurity. We have a food pantry that is open every Wednesday. It gives out food to people who need it. And if you want to participate, there, is, there are brown paper bags that you can pick up and go buy groceries and put that into the food pantry. But one of the other things that we do is that we partner with Grace Klein Ministries. Other churches do this exact same thing. But one of the things that we do is we have volunteers that go to places like Panera Bread or Publix and they take their day-old bread, things that they would just normally throw out and make something new the next day because nobody's gonna buy day-old bread or two-day-old bread. It was just gonna be thrown out. And so we collect these things and bring them to a mission center. And those mission centers take this bread that's still good and give it to people who need it the most, to homeless shelters, to food pantries, etc. Now that's not multiplying, so to speak, but it is taking something that was destined for the trash bin even though it's fine and putting it in the hands of people that need it most. Jesus is not only showing us through this sign that he is the son of God that can play with creation just as God did by taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying him, them. He's also demonstrating the compassion he has, the care he has, the abundance of giving and generosity that he doesn't just give them enough to hold them over until they get home for dinner. He lets them have enough. They are fully satisfied. They are full. And there's so much food that afterwards they pull in 12 additional baskets of leftovers. Everybody is full and happy. And in that sort of Thanksgiving Day coma, <laughs> I would imagine... He's compassionate. He gives them exactly what they needed even more. But he does so with just a little. Loaves and fishes. Something ordinary. A little boy's lunch. Feeding everyone. There are other ways that people can use loaves and fishes to make a difference. I have a friend named Ross who had a pastor friend in Dallas-Fort Worth area over in Texas. He was the pastor of young adults at a church and they had about 20 leaders in their church and they decided that they wanted to make a difference for the people in their community. And they found out about a program where you could buy medical debt. And so they did this. They went in and they said, we're going to raise $15,000 and it's gonna, it's gonna take away $1.5 million of hospital debt. And they wanna make sure that they target it just to their area. They wanted to make an impact in their communities. And they had 20 young adults and this young associate pastor came to the senior pastor with this idea. We're going to wipe out $1.5 million in debt. And the senior pastor in all his wisdom, like, like we normally do, say, you know what? You're young. This is ambitious. It's probably not going to happen. Let's wait a while. But they said, no, we're going to do this. They did bake sales. They did car washes. They did all this stuff to raise $15,000. And word started spreading out 
that this church was doing this and people from other churches said, hey, I want to participate. I want to help. They ended up raising in six weeks $18,000, which wiped out $1.8 million of debt in their area. And it came from loaves and fishes. It came from ones and fives and tens and twenties. It came from car washes. It came from small donations from people wanting to make an impact for their neighbors. And God took those loaves and fishes and transformed them into something that would really make an impact. And one of the neat things they said was is that the company that canceled that debt sent out a letter to the people whose debt was forgiven. And it said, this church in Dallas, Fort Worth has taken care of your debt. A church that some of them may have never heard of. Loaves and fishes, ordinary things given to God, multiplied to make a difference. It's not the hope that kills. It's the lack of hope. It's the lack of hope that holds us back. It's the lack of hope that doesn't trust that God can and will do something with what we have. Maybe one of the greatest examples of God's generosity in multiplying things over time comes from the communion table where Jesus and his disciples gathered for that first meal. The last supper, he took bread and he said that it was body and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He did the same with the cup. It was one loaf, one cup. And yet think about from that one supper, how many times over thousands of years that bread and that cup has multiplied over time to provide grace and love to Christian after Christian, generation after generation. God's grace being poured out on all of us. Loaves and fishes that make an impact because they're in God's hands. It's the hope that sets us free.